Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. From behavior coined man-terruption, where men cut into and talk over women without giving them a chance to speak. It's a fresh point of order. It's not a campaign, Mr Speaker. Campaign? I'm sorry, Catherine Delahunty. As a victim of sexual assault... Order, order. But people's perceptions were, because they're so used to women not speaking up, that they'd spoken too much and more than the men. To pay parity. Um, Today, a dollar settlement for workers in the care and support sector has been approved this afternoon by Cabinet... And what it means to balance motherhood with career. I'm not the first woman to work and have a baby. And then, just being plain invisible. Had a colleague working alongside with me, who was male, and the builder came in and shook my male colleague's hand (laughs) and not my hand. I'm Sonia Sly, and this is the final episode of RNZ podcast Beyond Kate. Now, in this final episode, we're focusing on women in the workforce. It's an area where women are still fighting for equal pay and where the balance between the sexes still needs to be addressed. But in order to make sense of where we're at today... We need to take account of the past. In the late 19th century, when women in our country won the right to vote, some girls as young as 12 were entering the workforce. The main employment of women at the time was domestic service. Here's Barbara Brooks, Professor of History at Otago University. So you went out to work in the houses of other people and you might do that at a very young age. You might be a childminder when you're... 11 or 12, for another family. I mean, 11 or 12, was that considered fairly responsible enough to, to start going out and earning a little bit of money? Yes, because families relied on the total income for the family economy. So it was family money rather than an individual wage that a person imagined was theirs. A domestic servant might earn, say, nine shillings a week. And nine shillings is about the equivalent of one twentieth of a UK pound. This is immigration, 1873. Twenty years before the suffrage legislation was passed. Oh, and this is archivist Sean Maguire from Archives New Zealand, who also featured in episode two, talking about his ancestor Felix Maguire. And we're in the bowels of archives to have a look at an historical poster. Free passage is to be given to single female domestic servants and dairymaids. Free passages to any daughter of married couples of 12 years of age and upwards. They were desperate for women in the country. You know, they really struggled to get people in as domestic service. Actually, it's keeping them as domestic servants. Right. They would arrive as domestic servants. And through the series, we've met some descendants of women who signed the petition, who in some instances ended up marrying the men of the household they were working for. Because New Zealand was largely male during those colonial years, so men wanted to head to the next stage in their lives. Which was actually to start a family, and they'd come hunting Well, it's not quite the same as Tinder or even going out for the night to a bar in the hopes to meet a woman. Because, well, there just weren't any. You need somebody that's going to work well and prepared to work in tough conditions. They'd arrive here and then until about the 1870s, 80s, there wasn't really a chance to go back. You know that saying that a woman's work is never done? Well, I think that's the case for many women today and certainly true of those from our past. I went to Maystown when I was 15. Alan Dennison, nee Mackey, grew up near Arrowtown in the South Island on her parents' farm. This is some audio recorded about 19th century women in work. And I went as a cook in the hotel. And it's there that she met her first husband, Thomas Patton. About 400 men in the mines up there. So they moved out of Maystown and she worked on his farm. Let's just say it wasn't an easy life. And I 
drove the horses in the chaff cutter for 15 years, and he wouldn't let nobody else drive these horses, only me. I'd be driving from about 7 o'clock in the morning until perhaps 7 o'clock at night. And uh, you just have a spell for meals? Yes, and I had to go and cook the meals too. And that's exactly what I mean. A woman's work is never done. Because even for those women today who have careers, there's still the washing, the cooking, the ironing, making dinner, looking after children. You get the picture. And did I mention she even had to make her own butter? I baked all the bread, made all the butter, made about £100 of butter a week. Which she sold to the locals too. And the butter went up to the miners in Maystown. But it wasn't the same case for all women. Middle-class women would not have been expected to work at all. Sandra Coney, local Auckland councillor, feminist, author and historian. And would uh, stay at home and help in the household before they got married. So it was, you know, quite advanced for women to want to actually have employment who were middle-class women. But working women really never had that luxury. Many, many girls, working-class girls, would have gone into domestic service. There was not a flood of girls wanting to go into domestic service, and it was actually seen as a bit of an anathema to the egalitarian nature of New Zealand society. So girls were more inclined to go into shops, factory work, sewing, and, of course, there was a lot of exploitation of girls and women who, who were in those forms of employment. So there were some big workrooms. Dress historian Jane Malthus in Dunedin. DIC had one, Herbert Haynes had one, Hallenstein's big clothing factory. That was making men's clothes, but that employed quite a lot of women. Which, for those of you living in New Zealand, will know it's a menswear store today. Department stores and drapers' shops, as they developed, included workrooms for making ready-to-wear garments, sometimes men's and women's. And they were also um, advertising that they could have a dressmaking service so you could come in and order a garment. All of that done in a very short time frame quite often. When there was a ball or something on, there was a great demand for new clothes to wear to the ball. And the expectation of everybody, including the workroom, was that the turnaround might only be three days for people. So they must have been working, you know, flat tack. Yes, Women and young girls were definitely being exploited and the working conditions weren't exactly pleasant or what you'd expect to deal with today. So there was a concern, for instance, when Hallenstein started their New Zealand clothing factory here in Dunedin, that provision of the toilets for the women workers was in a place where the women's entry and exit into those toilets was visible by the male workers and the inspector of nuisances was very concerned about this. So they can't be seen going to the bathroom? I think it was because it was seen as a private thing and this was a, a reduction in women's privacy perhaps. But certainly businesses like Hallenstein's and Herbert Haynes did provide toilets for their women workers uh, as well as their male workers. Or a woman's toilet would be separated from the men's toilets just by a calico sheet. This is curator Kirsty Ross at Te Papa Museum in Wellington. Or the women had to walk through the men's toilets to get to their own toilet. When women began leaving domestic service, there was very little provision in place for them to enter the workforce. There was this tension about women going out into public spaces but also retaining their respectability. Throughout our history, barriers have been set in place for women due to social attitudes and values of the time. But the world, as we know, continues to change, and that means that some of those outmoded ways of thinking should have been thrown out the window a long time ago. Back to Barbara Brooks again. The assumption is that there is a male breadwinner wage, that a man should support, earn enough to support his wife and family. And that becomes part of the award system. I mean, women were wanting to actually go out to work though, right? Like, yeah. And have a degree of independence and feel yeah. like they were contributing members of society. It's wrong to imagine that women who, weren't, who were at home raising their families didn't think they were contributing 
members of society. And they're great, you know, investment in community work and in church organisations. It's not about paid employment, it's about doing work for the community. Which is still work. But one of the major problems that women have historically encountered are issues around pay. And Kirsty Ross says that's due to the gendering of roles in the workforce. Caregivers is a prime example of women being concentrated in a very low job. Today that a $2 billion settlement for workers in the care and support sector has been approved this afternoon by Cabinet. And it's whether or not, because it's women in that job, that their work is devalued. But have you ever wondered how those kinds of feminised roles for women in the workforce began? Late 19th, early 20th century, women were starting to move into offices. And offices at that, that stage were actually male domains. Women pick up the more mundane mechanical sides of office work, like the typing, while the men retain the management, the accounting, the banking side of things. And where they maintain their position of power even today. But there were other gendered or feminised professions where women were seen as highly capable and definitely employable, including teaching, nursing. And while both men and women work in these professions today, these are still areas where pay is an issue. This next example provides insight into the thinking around women in work. Dentists, male-dominated profession, they wanted to protect their work and their salaries. They thought if women started working as dentists, they would be paid at a lower rate, and so that would undermine their salaries and so on. There was support anyway for women becoming dental nurses. Starts in 1921, the first intake of trainees. And it seems there are benefits for having women in the roles too. Women being, again, pigeonholed into these caring professions. They were good with children. And this is the kicker. Everybody expected them to leave once they got married and would never really be a serious threat to the dental profession. There, you see? There was definitely an agenda into how women's roles have been shaped. But for the working poor, there was still very little choice. Some women took in other people's washing. And back then, it wasn't a matter of putting your clothing and bedding into a washing machine. Nope, clothes were washed by hand. And it would take all day. You know, she ran a strict household and took no nonsense. Now, you might recall Margaret Stott from an earlier episode where she talked about her forebear, Margaret Whelan, who had migrated from Ireland and made her way to Dunedin. She had eight children, five girls and three boys. And she sent her children off to work as soon as they were old enough. She got them all jobs at a place down the road that sewed up flower bags. People used to buy the flour and then tip it into a drawer and then you'd use a spoon or a cup to get the flour out of the drawer. I was brought up like that as well. So all these flower bags had to be sewn and the girls all got jobs in the flower bag factory. They called it Smith's Flower Bags or something. Oh, right. So they literally sewed the bags. They sewed the bags and they were sewn along the top. And just an interesting aside, nothing ever went to waste. And all the cups with broken handles, they were the ones that were used in the drawer to get Perfect. the cup out. How much do you reckon they got paid working in there? I should think not very much, no. no. I mean, are they sewing them with a machine or by hand? They'd be sewing the machine on the outside and then by hand along the top. Mm. But those flower bags came in handy over the years because when you made the, the boys' pants for school or the men's pants or you made a skirt for yourself, you lined it with the, with the calico from the flower bags. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> There was quite often a pattern that said Smith's across it. Right. <laughs> or whatever happened to be the flower of the day. Women through the generations were fighting for change, but they were also interested in challenging themselves, just as they are today, and being in industries that men never expected them to excel in. Week after week, thousands of us have been in training, ever since we in New Zealand undertook to pull our weight in this war. World War I and II would mobilise women in the workforce, engaging them in industries previously dominated by men. 
those between the ages of about 18 and 40, were sent out to work in woolen mills, tobacco factories, and were even drafted into the Navy and the Air Force. And by World War II, women were employed in decoding and administration work in the Air Force, where close to 4,000 women passed through its ranks, and at least 100 of those became officers. And on that note, it's time to fast forward to the Porirua Police Station, where I meet up with Inspector and Area Commander Tracy Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Gosh, you're about my height. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Would you like a drink? Are you okay? Yes, I know. I was pleasantly surprised that Tracy was not much taller than me. I'm 4'11 and a half, by the way. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how tiny you are. I mean, no, I just, I am super impressed because I was just saying to these lovely ladies that, you know, back when I was studying... She didn't fit into any kind of stereotype of what you'd expect of a woman in the police force. At least, not in my mind. In fact, she was kind of the antithesis, which just goes to show there's no one way of being. In any industry, yeah, you know, yeah, you're I quite know. petite, and all this. Um, we still had the height restrictions when I joined too. So. How long ago was that? Uh, ninety-five. Right, and what was the height restriction? Oh gosh, I can't remember now, but I think I might have just been on the border. I guess when I first started, I didn't fit the mould, and that's probably in size and the way that I think. Tracy has been in the police force for twenty-three years. She began training as a 20-year-old, and out of 80 students, at least 20 were women. So my role is very much uh, overseeing policing from Tawa through to the Kapiti Coast. What was it that made you want to join the police force? To be fair, I thought I was going to be too small. I did. (laughs) I worked at the Rotorua Courthouse, and of course working in the courts, you're working with police... So through conversations with them, it was just something that I thought I'd like to give a go. But contrary to what she thought or expected, she didn't feel as emotionally equipped at the time to deal with some of the scenarios she was presented with. The thought of being a police officer was exciting. The reality was a little bit different. Anything that's traumatic is hard for anyone to attend. Any any person, any emergency services tender, any member of the public that comes across anything where there's trauma involved. So that's always very hard to deal with. And today, she's witnessed even more serious events, like homicides. She openly admits that it doesn't necessarily get easier. A lot of people know that when you're turning up at a doorstep at 2 o'clock in the morning in a blue uniform, it's probably not for a good reason. So it's very emotional and never gets easier. I mean, do you feel like there is a way that you deal with it differently as a woman? I probably think I'm very empathetic and I, I don't come across as threatening. If you're on the ground and you have to do a job, whether you're a woman or not, it needs to get done. There's a benefit to having women in the police force, as well as men and women from diverse cultural backgrounds at that upper level. But today, Tracy's pretty much on her own. That's part of the challenge too for me and for the other women in senior roles in the organisation, is to make sure that we're succession planning and that we're identifying and supporting and helping women and Māori women to reach, you know, positions of, you know, influence and and decision-making. From women in the police force to those in construction. You know, I've got a, a memory of managing a job. And this is Claire Todd. She lives in Wellington and has been working in architecture for just over 10 years getting tenders and had a colleague working alongside with me who was male and the builder came in and shook my male colleague's hand and not my hand. How did you feel in that moment? A little bit surprised, shocked that something like that would happen. I felt, well, we won't work with that builder. I didn't want to have a builder to have to deal with disrespect or, you know, not being listened to or having to have a male colleague speak on my behalf. It's a bit of a shocker, to say the least. You know, this was a job that I was running. To not shake my hand 
I think he addressed most of his questions to my male colleague. So this is even after being introduced to you? Yeah. It's one thing not to be listened to, but to be ignored, because women in any sphere of work should never be treated like they're invisible, a non-entity. And it happens all too frequently. But one of the other issues that many women face in the workforce is that balance between motherhood and career, something that our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is currently in the thick of. I am not the first woman to multitask. I'm not the first woman to work and have a baby. I know these are special circumstances, but there'll be many women uh, who will have done this well before I have. And women have often quietly struggled with the role they're meant to play. Here's some archival audio from a 1970s RNZ episode of documentary series Spectrum called Far Out Feminist. I had been conditioned to believe that my role was to have the children bathed and ready for a meal, the meal on the table, and not quite, but almost, uh, my husband's slippers waiting to be slipped into as though my job during the day had been easy and his had been incredibly hard. And that's not the way it was. Bringing up children was difficult. And as a mother to an our five-year-old, I can totally relate. I've struggled with that tension between trying to be a good mother and loving my career. And it's a struggle to be everything to all people. And in those jobs where hours are long, like Claire's industry as an architect, it's even more problematic for those women. They don't need to be that long and arduous hours that you put in. Claire has female friends who work in the industry who now have children. And while returning to work, they couldn't help but feel like they were being watched. And they were judged for leaving at five o'clock or whatever their work hours were. But they were efficient in those eight hours that they worked, whereas their colleagues were having long morning teas and chatting over the coffee machine for most of the working day and then were working through the night, yet this woman who was going home to her family at five had done her job. So those expectations, do you think that they're kind of unrealistic or just irrelevant? (laughs) The expectations? Both, probably. It's not about how long you're in the office, it's about the work that you're achieving. We'll come back to Claire in a bit. I headed up to Auckland to the student hub at AUT where I met up with Dr Barbara Myers. She's a senior research lecturer in management and her area of specialty focuses largely on women's careers, which, of course, are very different to men's. Well, there are a number of disparities. Pay equity, a low number of women on board, occupational segregation. And this year, there have been nurses' strikes and teachers' strikes, and it goes on and on. Well, midwives across the country are marching for better pay and working conditions. Midwives are earning just $7.23 an hour, and urban ones, $12.80. Those gendered occupations, you'd argue, are disadvantaged. Women do face boundaries. Not much has been talked about the psychological boundaries and the family boundaries. What are some of those psychological boundaries, do you think, for women? They're really not as physically mobile. And why that matters is because... A good current understanding of careers is sort of a person's work-related and other relevant non-work-related activities that kind of contribute... The question then is who decides what's relevant when it comes to work progression and non-related work activity? Is volunteering for a charitable organisation the same as, for instance, bringing up a well-rounded, happy human being? (laughs) What's seen as valuable and valued in the eyes of our employers, on our CVs and in the eyes of society? Who makes the decisions? People opt in and opt out of work. And that idea of opting out could be taking time to have a family, for instance. There's no value attached to the work that people do when they opt out. And Barbara feels, I'm sure like many women, that there are valuable skills learnt in becoming a parent, like learning about relationships, all those intangible things which do impact on your ability in a workplace, but are still not recognised, so they're still not valued. And just as Claire mentioned earlier, some research that Barbara conducted, along with two other colleagues, revealed the idea of surveillance 
that they were being watched. People were kind of looking at them. They felt an enormous sense of pressure as part of that process. Coming back to work, they were behind. They couldn't meet the promotion measures in the same way as a person who hadn't been away from work could. I mean, if a woman can have children, she has to create a whole lot of resources and structures around herself in her own life to be able to be on a level playing ground at work. Part-time is definitely disadvantaged in terms of accumulating brownie points. Which brings us full circle back to Claire. So I work very flexible hours. I'm very fortunate to do that. I get paid for the work that I'm doing and the hours that it's taking me to do the work. When there is a deadline, I can work up to 30 hours a week, I'd say. While you'd be hard-pressed to find women with 8 to 15 children, like they did back in Kate Shepard's time, there are other expectations placed on women who have families, which for me begs the question. Did you feel like you weren't performing your wifely or motherly duties fully? Because um, it is yeah. a massive load to bear. I often, I often feel that split between am I giving my children enough attention, am I giving my job enough attention, are both kind of being not done well enough. Because having children is hard work. Like, it's harder than being at work because you can't leave at the end of the day and file your children into a cabinet. Not that you would, but for anyone who has had a baby will know that at least for the first year of your child's life, your body does not belong to you. You have little or no time to yourself and you can't even go to the bathroom on your own, which means returning to work feels like freedom. There's three branches of Nawick around New Zealand in Wellington, Christchurch and Auckland. This is Janine Mitchell, who also happens to be Claire's boss. She's the director for Studio 8 Architecture out in Houghton Bay in Wellington and she's also the Wellington Chapter Chair of Nawick, the National Association of Women in Construction. What I saw was this amazingly supportive organisation that would uh, support and encourage women in the construction industry. Nawick has the stats of 17% of the construction workforce is now women. But while there are women training across related fields, the stickability isn't great, and many of those top jobs are still not being filled by women. Partly that's because women are opting out, as Barbara called it, to have a family. And also... It's well known that women don't tend to sing their own praises as much and don't tend to push themselves forward into leadership roles. As a member of this House over a most important matter, I don't see why I shouldn't be just allowed to finish my question. No, I'm sorry. I'll refer the member to the Standing Order 111 and I will certainly take it away and look at it. I am... But one woman who's never been afraid to speak her mind and put herself front and centre is New Zealand academic and former Labour MP and Speaker of the House of Representatives, Margaret Wilson. I entered politics because I believed in certain policies that I wanted to progress. As the first woman at the helm, what kind of trickle-down effect do you think that might have had? Well, I think it started, hopefully, to normalise it. This was a role in a constitutional function that both men and women could have. A lot of my time as Speaker was spent on administration, actually, because we, thank goodness, avoided a member's allowances scandal, as they were having in the UK at the time. So I spent a lot of time trying to rewrite the rules in consultation with the members. So everybody was clear what was public money, what could be spent, how it could be accounted for. I didn't feel any external pressure, to be honest. I spent a lot of time trying to come to terms with the standing orders, the Speaker's rulings, thinking through what would be appropriate uh, to allow and disallow. She basically wanted to excel in her job. For me, the pressure was more on making sure I was prepared to give what I thought were reasons for rulings. I think that's really important, that if you're saying someone's point of order is not, in fact, a point of order, and the vast majority of them aren't, at least you can give them an explanation for why, and if they don't accept it, others probably will. Um, yes, there, there were comments about you um, that were gendered. I was seen as being much too assertive, if you like. Margaret was the first woman speaker in Parliament, and she did anticipate that there would be some men who might find that idea challenging. And they did. 
One of those was Rodney Hyde, a former party leader of ACT New Zealand, which had a right-wing, classical liberal point of view. Who really was quite disrespectful to the chair and to me personally. Which meant she did something she wasn't exactly proud of. I merely said you asked that question consistent with the standing orders. Would the member please leave the House? So I reprimanded him, I suppose, with allusions which I'm not very proud of to his masculinity. He shut what down very quickly. I can't remember the oh. exact words. I'll get them wrong. But And I remember at the time thinking, oh, goodness, do I have to, <laughs> have to put him in this position? It shut him up and everybody else in the parliament for a while and things went along quite well. Now, what I was demonstrating, I had a verbal capacity to put people down. I was good with language. That's not a necessarily a good characteristic. One that certainly served her during her time in Parliament, no less. But it comes back to that old adage that women, like children, should be seen and not heard. Well, not in an aggressive or assertive way, like a man. But on occasions, to be able to assert your authority, which is an essentially a masculine environment, it was necessary to do so. One would think when you get to that point and you're actually in the House of Representatives that there are things that are just inappropriate and that this kind of behaviour should not exist. Parliament's representative. I'd be surprised if you didn't get the odd sexist reference in Parliament because that is reflective of the community. It happens in the community. Should it be allowed to happen? Oh, probably not if you were respectful to others. So when it comes to women being assertive... There are double standards. Here's Jane Major, who you might have heard in the last episode. It would be a positive in a man, whereas it's a negative for a woman. And that starts in childhood. Those messages about how girls should interact, how girls should speak, hold themselves, behave, um, compared to boys, starts at a very early age. So they're both socialised in ways that kind of limits potentially their choices and their ways of being in the world. Which is kind of sad in a way. Now, I was one of those kids who used to be outspoken. I was quickly taught that my way of communicating, albeit instinctive, was inappropriate, that I talked too much. I was constantly reprimanded and became this quiet, submissive, shy child. I even made myself a vow of silence, as a form of rebellion, which lasted a few weeks. But not having the permission to essentially be myself, well, it took years, and I mean almost a lifetime to recover from, which goes to show that the rules we learn in childhood can be detrimental. So I want to dig a little deeper here. I headed to Victoria University to speak to Janet Holmes and I'm an Emeritus Professor of Linguistics and Associate Director of the Language in the Workplace Project at Victoria University of Wellington. And while we're on the topic of women who speak out... I'm Cheryl Sutheran, the first CEO of Te Papa, who was described as a rottweiler because she was assertive and described as bossy and bitchy. People use very negative words about her, whereas a guy in the same situation is often described as assertive and decisive and authoritative. And... Is a name for this kind of reaction or behaviour. The gender order. And it's really just looking at what are the norms and expectations about the way people behave. And those who decide what's acceptable comes down to... The person who's got the most status and power has the right to organise the talk, decide how long people are going to talk and so on, regardless of gender, whether they're a man or a woman. More recently, the sort of research that's been done has taken account of many more... Um, social factors. So we look at, um, for example, Māori women's speech, Māori leaders compared to Pākehā leaders. And how do they compare? There are styles of talk that tend to be um, favoured in particular situations. What we might call stereotypically feminine styles of talk tend to be used by both men and women when they're trying to be persuasive or when they want to get on good terms with people or when they want to Uh, offer an opinion but not be too assertive about it. So these are styles that we can use and that tend to have been stereotyped as male or female but in fact are available. And the same with ethnicity. If you recall back to episode 5, we looked at issues around cultural diversity, 
Now, in New Zealand, Māori women have always held high status within their communities, and Janet conducted some research within a Māori organisation which revealed some differences that also translate into something that's very specific to New Zealand culture. A woman leader tends to be um, self-deprecating. She doesn't blow her own trumpet. She tends to um, be quite modest, and that's a very important Māori value that you don't talk yourself up but the same sort of thing applies, of course, in certain Pagaha contexts. Um, it's fine in an interview to blow your own trumpet and say how good you are and why you're the best person for the job. But in many other contexts, you know, telling people how expert you are and how, um, how good you are at something is regarded as uh, inappropriate in New Zealand, where we have a very egalitarian ethic. The old tall poppy syndrome. These sorts of differences tend to come out when you start looking at a whole range of workplaces and some workplace cultures are much more assertive and argumentative and aggressive than others. IT would be a good example in our in the IT workplaces. The guys tended to argue with each other a lot. They'd make jokes and put each other down. We call it doing team, showing that they got on well with each other. Whereas in what we might call a more feminine workplace people very supportive and collaborative and if somebody expressed an opinion other people would come in with supportive ideas or if somebody disagreed with somebody they'd do it in a very indirect and hedged way. I mean I think even women get their backs up so I posted something in a response to someone on Twitter about the fact that you know I was a tomboy and I was pleased that I was never someone who liked horses I never fit the cliche or the sort of stereotype of what it meant to be a girl and then some someone else Said, why should my daughter not be allowed to wear a fairy costume? But I never said, you know, no, I never exactly. said yeah. that she couldn't. No, we shouldn't be bound by these notions about what's appropriate for men and women. That's basically the effect of the gender order. It says boys are expected to be assertive and jump around and be very uh, energetic, and girls are expected to be quiet and docile. And it's really hard to change that because the society reinforces it in all sorts of subtle ways. Immediately you get that sort of negative reaction from conservative people who think, well, you know, we like girls to behave like little girls. So social attitudes will always influence the way that we use language. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask anybody, no matter how they behave themselves, they know what the norms are. You know, any woman knows if she's actually challenging the norms. But being conscious of how we communicate is one thing because there are systems in place that don't take into consideration inclusion when it comes to gender. Here's Margaret Wilson again. One of the the first issues when the Human Rights Commission was first established in the 70s was gendered language. The power of language could never be underestimated, and that's the same today. Somehow we've slipped (laughs) in terms of perhaps not according the seriousness that the way in which we communicate orally um, we do it more orally now probably than, than written. We need to be having a consciousness about how we express ourselves. Hi, how are you? Hi. Please come. My name is Maso Mohagek. I'm a lecturer in the School of Engineering, Computer and Mathematical Sciences at Auckland University of Technology. Masa is also the founder and director of a not-for-profit organisation called She Sharp. I did my bachelor's degree in computer software engineering and I moved to computer architecture and computer networks for my master and I moved to New Zealand in 2008 and I did my PhD in artificial intelligence and natural language processing. Massa sees a need for women in the industry. When she was studying, she was the only woman in her class. But arriving in New Zealand, she was faced with the same thing. She says there are problems with perception that limit women entering the industry, as well as a lack of female role models. It's also the kind of industry that's maybe not so appealing for women, according to Massa, who, by the way, is pretty girly by her own admission. And I want to be girly, and I think there's no problem to be girly, so you don't need to wear a hoodie to be a coder. I'm pleased to hear it. But the reason why women are really needed in the industry is because without them and diversity in general, mistakes are being made. Masser attended a conference run by Google. And they were talking about the YouTube app. And what they noticed about the videos that were uploaded? They were all upside down. 
So the reason for that, they noticed that if you're a right-handed, you hold the phone in a way that, you know, you can actually get the video. If you're left-handed, you hold it for the other way around that automatically just, you know, reversed and turned the picture. So they didn't have anyone in the team, development team, left-handed to test that application with it before releasing. And that's why having people from different backgrounds, including women and left-handers, are crucial to product development in the tech industry. But in creating that necessary change, the wording around how roles are advertised also needs a bit of thought. So we are looking for a code ninja for that. Code ninja. This is called the Japanese crab technique. And I'm just like, I don't want to be a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you think it immediately just, puts oh, women just off. That, that Definitely, that's not a right wording. To be honest, though, I quite like it. But I get it. It has a certain kind of energy to it, though, doesn't it? Like a coding ninja. <laughs> Vital, somebody who's kind of quick and can operate in the dark. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. At lightning speeds. If you really care about inclusion and diversity in your workplace, if you want to increase the number of female, you need to be mindful of how to word that job description and ad. But what about those jobs that are more physically demanding? I decided it was time to head to the country. Timekeepers are ready. Go! Well, from the studio at least, to chat to 26-year-old Pagan Karodia. She's a competition shearer and wool handler, and earlier this year she featured in a documentary called She Shears. Good shearing requires two, balance, grace, rhythm. I think I've been begging my dad to shear sheep since I was eight or nine years old, but I was never allowed. I've been competition shearing for about three years. The last two years I've only done maybe five or six shows a year where I actually shear just because I've been trying to make the New Zealand team. So, yeah, it is very demanding. You have to be very fit and all your gear has to be spot on. Uh, competition sheep are prepped quite well. They're crutched and have a belly off, so they can be anywhere between sort of 40 and, and 70 kilos, I'd, I'd say. When we're shearing every day, they can be sort of 80 to 110 kilos. We really have to think when we're manoeuvring um, the sheep around the board, especially with live sheep and machinery at the same time, it can get a bit difficult, especially when they're really kicky. Pagan grew up on a farm working in sheds with her dad, but the work is definitely no walk in the park. And when you're working alongside the boys, the competition's pretty stiff. It's a game of... Counting sheep. 1, 10, 25, 67, 125, 301, Summertime here, I'm sort of doing anywhere between 3 and sort of 390 a day. That's my highest I've done. It can be quite gruelling the first sort of few weeks, but you get used to it. It's seven days a week. So we only really get a day off if we ask for one. You're up at half past 4, 4 o'clock in the morning and then sort of down again by 8 or 9 o'clock at night kind of reminds me of Alan Dennison from the archival audio at the beginning of the episode. But maybe that's just farming life for you. Having a day off can kind of disrupt all that, take you a few more days to get back into it. But she isn't keen for her younger sisters to get involved in shearing. You see, it's an historically male-dominated industry that still doesn't really accommodate women. It's the same reason my father didn't want me there, I suppose. You get to some sheds and there's no toilets and... Sometimes the water's not great, you can't drink the water. And there's some farms are really good, they look after you and you have flush toilets and you have drinking water and that, but some don't. Gosh, so how do you actually manage that, like, as a, as a woman? Like, is, does it add to a level of discomfort or less enjoyment in your work? I mean, I just won't go to farms where there's no toilets. I'll just let Dad know that, you know, there's no toilets there, I, I won't go there and... Just take all my own water anyway. Most of our sheds in New Zealand are actually not too bad. I've shown in many places in New Zealand and Australia, the guys sort of do just go around the back. There's always a long drop or, you know, most of our farms that started off with long drops and stuff like that, you know, they're all getting flush toilets and I think they're starting to be more up to date with that sort of thing and bringing in drinking water and all that. I guess it's a start. Yes, things have moved forward for women. But, according to Margaret Wilson, there is one other thing that allows women a bit more freedom. 
frequently women had very little control over the decisions that were important in their lives. Now we do have more control. And for me, the fundamental to that is that women have financial control. In other words, that we have an economic independence that then gives us options in a way that we certainly haven't had in the past. And that, to me, has been why pay equity and equal employment opportunity, and I would say looking at the tax system as well, whatever it is in terms of um, enabling women to be financially independent is an important step on the way to, in fact, achieving equality. I have to agree wholeheartedly with Margaret. If we think back to those women who fought for women to have a right to vote, for social reform, to have an equal say on how society should run, to be valued and to have rights within divorce, it's clear that with financial equality, women do have more opportunities, as well as social freedoms and independence. But what happens without that? And are there women who fall through the cracks? The answer is yes, even today. And that's one thing that still hasn't changed since women gained the right to vote. Because for those at the bottom, there are barriers that keep them there. I met up with Paula Lloyd on a rainy Wellington day and we headed down a discreet alleyway to the Wellington Homeless Women's Trust. Paula's the manager for the centre and she sees a range of women from different cultures and backgrounds coming through the doors. They're sent there on referral and can stay for months at a time. It's an interim measure to help them into safe housing, away from abusive situations and even trauma. Gender plays um, a significant difference in homelessness. I've heard that the 70% of those on the MSD social housing list are women. 70%? Yeah. That's huge. It is huge. I mean, what's the oldest that you've had, you know, in terms of age of a woman coming through these doors? 59, I think. She was living on the streets. I mean, is A number of health issues, physical health issues. And let's face it, if you live on the streets, you have little or no means to really look after yourself. It's brutal. And today, it's easy to assume that we live in an age where everything is accessible. Access to healthcare, to social services and even digital technology, which for most of us is right at the tip of our fingers. But that's not always the case. But it really depends on where your state of mind is. So you might have an experience that every time that you've tried to access somewhere that it's been really too difficult, that no one's really listened to you. You might have really low self-worth and you might not know if it isn't even worthwhile of you approaching that service. In this series, we've addressed a range of issues relating to women and poverty is still an issue that's as relevant today as it was in the past. Many of the women who end up using the facility have come from situations of domestic and family violence, They've got no financial means to get ahead and nowhere else to go. Most of the women will arrive here with um, quite substantial debt. Quite frequently, women come to homelessness services really quite late on in their housing challenge times because they have exhausted all their social networks. In that process, they have spent more money. They might have been overcompensating by paying more to stay with someone they know, or they've made poor choices in a situation where they're desperate and not in the right frame of mind. They've taken out loans where they didn't really need to. They're trying to make connect with their children and overcompensating with money in those spaces. Also, the women that are here, sometimes they've got all their furniture in storage, so they're paying that every week. And if you could imagine if you're on benefits and you're paying $30, $40 a week to keep your furniture all in the hopes that one day they'll be settled into a comfortable, safe home. And let's not forget, too, that women are also more vulnerable on the streets. And women will be used in that space as well. You think Because so? they're so desperate. But then you know that when, just before they came here, they were staying at somebody else's flat and they were possibly having to trade sex to stay there. People prey on other people when they're desperate. And there's also a different attitude that exists towards women who end up in the cycle of homelessness. There's a lot of stigma around mothers 
that aren't with their children. And there's a lot of blame around that too. When they do see a woman sitting on the pavement, a lot of people still think that it's the woman's fault. We've had comments put on our Facebook page with people challenging, you know, these women have put themselves in this situation. I, I sorted myself out and I was a lone parent and this is what I can do. So yeah, there's a lot of judgment still. I mean, how far, if we were to look, you know, it's 125 years since women got the vote. How far have we really come and, and what needs to change now? Oh, I think quite a long way, actually, and <laughs> much better than, than we were in the 1890s, and we should never forget that. You know, it's a bit like women getting the vote. There needed to be somebody that stood up and made a big noise in a song and dance about it. We're standing up and making a little bit of noise, or as much noise as we're allowed to make, actually. You know, I've sat on selection panels where astonishingly awful things have been said about women candidates. If we can provide the opportunity for our all young women to make an informative decision and to pursue what they're passionate about and not what they feel they have to pursue, we were very successful. One hundred and twenty-five years on, there are so many victories that have been won and should be celebrated. But we still have a long way to go, if there's any chance for equality. You've been listening to Beyond Kate. Special thanks to to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at Hitohu, the National Library of New Zealand. The studio engineer for this episode was Mark Chesterman. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team was Adam McCauley and the executive producer for this episode was Justin Gregory. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. And that wraps up Beyond Kate. Thanks again for joining me for the ride and special thanks to all the incredible women and men who contributed to the series. If you'd like to listen again, you can head to the RNZ website, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.